We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening, everybody. We uh, welcome you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, please, tonight. Please take that Bible in front of you and turn it to Matthew 24. We uh, had a little study in this uh, some time ago, um, in uh, actually the summer of 2020. It's been over two years now already since we were in Matthew 24 and 25, but I'm treating it now in the order of our series because we just finished chapter 23 and the lamentation that Jesus had over Jerusalem. As I begin this section of Scripture, it has to do with the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man, and it's particularly dealing with the second coming of Christ Interest, of course, always runs high in future events. Everybody wants to know what's around the corner, but the reality is it's the mercy of God that he doesn't tell us everything that's around the corner. If you knew all the bad news that was coming, uh, you couldn't take it. If you knew all the good news that was coming, you probably couldn't wait. And, uh, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> these uh, people today want certainty. They want to know, uh, you know what's going on. They believe bad things are going to happen, and they sometimes uh, are convinced that they know what's going to happen when they have no real clue uh, about that. The Lord has spent three years ministering publicly to the nation of Israel. He's preached everywhere and worked miraculous signs such as healing and even raising the dead and casting out demons. He extended uh, to them an offer of the kingdom of God, but he was largely rejected by the leaders and many of the populace, either by reason of... um, laxity, laziness, or, uh, or just outright hostility because his offer required that they repent of their evil ways. And who wants to do that? If you like what you're doing, not many people want to do that until they get sick of it and realize that its end is only destruction. <clears throat> Some were following him, but did not fully understand yet the divine plan for redemption or the delay in the appearance of the kingdom. So the Lord comes into Jerusalem with great fanfare. He's uh, ejecting from the temple those who were making God's house into a den of thieves. He told parables that confronted the evil of the Pharisees. He dealt with their questions and gave him one of their own. And then in the prior chapter here, he just pronounced grievous woes on the religious leaders. They were hypocrites. They were fools. Some of the disciples at the same time expected that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tamped down that expectation. Immediately, that was immediately before the triumphal entry, in fact. And so still, this was not well understood, at least by the zealous uh, that were among them. And so, and even after that, um, in, in Acts, the disciples were asking about his coming. Here they ask in chapter 24 about the signs of his coming. 
Um, they did not conceive of his coming in the same way that we do, and I suspect that the way we conceive of it is not altogether entirely accurate either. I mean, in terms of how we envision it happening. Uh, but when it comes, it will come. We know the general outline of the events. The Lord will return in bodily person and uh, take over the world after the tribulation and be the king of it. But uh, many perceived his coming as an imminent appearance to establish his kingdom at that time when he came into Jerusalem. Uh, some had, had paid close attention, on the other hand, to the parable that he just told in Luke 19 and may have understood that the nobleman was leaving for a far country to return at some later time to receive the right to rule for himself. And, and then even after this, a few days later in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked the Lord this question, remember, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And so they're still thinking about this, still occupied with it. They wondered what it would look like in the upcoming days when the Lord took over the city and the nation and defeated the Romans. It's unclear if they considered much about what the Lord would do with respect to redemption from sin, but maybe, maybe his death was the trip to the far country, and now he's returned from that because he rose from the dead. I don't know what they were thinking. I'm just posing you know, thoughts here. They were looking forward to him reigning as king, but they didn't really realize that the end of the age, which they thought kind of really started immediately, was not going to be for a little while. When we studied this, actually, let me read it here, uh, starting in verse 24 in chapter 1. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show uh, him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat at the Mount of, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. That's just the beginning of it. So let's think about this for a minute now. The disciples did not have the benefit of hindsight like we do. And, and I guess let me just say this at the outset. We think you know, we have hindsight, and we, we have the New Testament of the Bible and all that, but even with the benefit of the hindsight we have, we're still a little bit dull about the things of God, aren't we? But even w they didn't have that at all, and uh, about the Lord's life and ministry, death and resurrection, they didn't have the benefit of a completed New Testament revelation that laid out exactly what happened in the Lord's first coming and the blessed hope of the second coming. Remember, too, that the Lord before his crucifixion had not fully revealed the details of the church. Can you imagine a life, a religious life, without any church? That's how it was until about 2,000 years ago in world history. For thousands and thousands of years, there was no church. 
and the church became a new thing in Acts chapter 1 and 2, and especially then on through the book of Acts. came kind of gradually in the early chapters and then ramped up as the Apostle Paul began to plant local churches around the Mediterranean world. The great distance between the first and second comings was not understood by the disciples as a possibility. Not as much detail at that time was given about the rapture and the judgments uh, that would come uh, and how the kingdom fit in with the tribulation and all of that. The book of Revelation was not yet written. Uh, That was not to be written for another, what, 40 to 50 years, 60 years perhaps, um, after the happenings of these gospels. We can be sympathetic to the disciples too, can't we? There was so much new. Can you imagine if the Lord came and brought new things to us and it was like, wait, this isn't how church used to be. This isn't what uh, we're accustomed to. We would be no different. Remember, these men had been with Jesus for several years and received all his perfect instruction. They were no spiritual dummies. Still, they didn't have everything that was available to us today we have an opportunity to understand more clearly. And may I urge you to do that? But with that, of course, comes that greater responsibility that we've often talked about. Um, I have uh, an outline of future events. It's kind of a brief bullet point outline that I've shared with you before. It's on the church website. Uh, In fact, I think I've duplicated it on today's notes page on the fbca.org slash docs, so you can look at that um, from before. Uh, but that's available to you. We can you know, use that summary of divine revelation to fit in what the Lord is saying here in its proper context. All that stuff on that document was drawn from the text of Scripture, uh, and we can fit this stuff in back into that outline and see uh, how it all fits together, and that would help us understand Matthew 24 and 25. There's been no end of difficulty here in these portions just like in the book of Revelation. We need to, however, let the text uh, speak on its own terms so that it can make its own contribution to our understanding of things. But we do not need to do so from a foggy mental position like the disciples may have had. We have all the other revelation of Scripture to contribute to our understanding. And at the same time, uh, I don't believe though, that it's the job, my job to necessarily fit together all the eschatological details in one sermon or in every sermon. The sermon of our Lord here has great power, even if we do not resolve all the difficulties that it might have. Instead, we need to focus on what we can learn from it and how we can apply it as we walk along the way toward these events. So that's all just kind of by way of introductory discussion of what we're looking at. We begin then with verse 1. The disciples were looking at the massive buildings, the height and the, you know, from, from the lowest part of the Valley of Kidron up to the top of this temple complex, hundreds of feet. And it was quite a, a, a massive accomplishment. The size and mass of what I call in my notes the boulders that were used to build these structures. Now, they weren't really boulders in the sense of, you know, you see a big kind of mal-shaped rock, but, uh, you know, carefully quarried, carefully squared material. 
that supplied Herod's construction. Some have said that the stones were up to 24 feet long, eight meters or so, and they were dragged to the building site by oxen. Now, I don't know if they did that on timbers or logs to help them roll or how they exactly did that, but I mean, you know, a rock that was sitting on top of this pulpit of this size, I mean, that would be tremendously difficult and I'll say it was like this high, tremendously difficult to lift, one person, maybe two people. But just think about 24 feet, you know, that's, that's uh, from here on this side of the auditorium to there's about 38. So two, more than two-thirds or about two-thirds of this width, 24 feet long, massive stones. And they look at all these, and they're flabbergasted at them and uh, beholding these, these buildings. But Jesus shocked them by saying that all of the stones would be thrown down and the structure would be destroyed. Now that was as unimaginable as thinking in 1999 that the Twin Towers in New York could fall down in a day in the space of several hours. You couldn't imagine it. That's what happened. That's the kind of prediction that that the Lord is giving these men. This is what's going to happen. Now, what temple is the Lord speaking about? And the reason I'm going over this is because this question, we're going to have to ask ourselves, is the Lord talking about stuff near to be fulfilled or far to be fulfilled? In fact, there's both in this passage in, in turn, but not overlapping or at the same time or by the same words. Let me try to explain. Obviously, to me anyway, his words were fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, and his legion destroyed the city. That marked the end of the temple. That marked the end of Jewish worship, Jewish sacrifice, central altar, the whole nine yards was done. That which was ready to vanish away actually did vanish. It perished. Now, Some might suppose, well, maybe the Lord's words will be fulfilled a second time. That question is a little bit slippery to begin with because of the issue of double meaning. These words only mean one thing. They don't mean two things simultaneously. But the Bible does disclose that a temple will be built and operational during the early years of the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2.4, that is where the abomination of desolation will take place. That is where uh, the Antichrist will take over, if you will. That temple will be desecrated and probably destroyed in the end time. Revelation 11 may indicate. And it will be replaced by a temple in our Lord's millennial kingdom. The millennial temple is described in great detail in which part of the Bible? Ezekiel 40 to 48, you remember we read through that and talked in great depth about it. The Lord's words here have a near fulfillment, not that far fulfillment. How do I know that? Because, well, let's look at Mark chapter 13 and verse number 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Same here in chapter 24, 
Verse 2, do you not see all these things? I say to you, surely, or assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The text of the Bible says these great buildings are what the Lord is talking about. Those ones that they're looking at and saying, wow, look at them, how grand they are. He's saying these buildings are the ones that are going to be torn down. Now, after they're torn down, can they be torn down again? No, they're done. Once they're torn down, there's no more of them. Okay, So that's why I take it very, uh, it's a certainty that the Lord is not speaking of other buildings in the future, but of these particular buildings. What I believe is important to note here is this. This is just kind of a side note, if you will, or an introductory note to the content of the chapter. Here's what's important. The remainder of the chapter does not focus on the destruction of the temple. If you were a Jewish person, you might write a whole book about, I mean, a, a Jew who didn't believe in the Messiah, you might write a whole book about the destruction of the temple and the history of it and how that happened, and what they, the Jews tried to do to restore it, and all that sort of thing. You'd be very focused on the temple because that was the center of worship. But the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 4, there's coming a day when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will one worship, for God seeks those to worship who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Anywhere in the world, the, the location is not, does not matter. And so the important thing is not the, the, to focus on the temple's destruction. The Lord uses the opportunity to point the disciples to a more important truth, which is the second coming of Christ. I believe he, mention, I believe he mentions the destruction as, a, as fantastic as it is to attract their attention so that he can warn them to be ready, to take a stance of readiness concerning what is coming after that. He looks beyond this kind of shocking event of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. to a point farther down the the line in the future when many more important events will occur. And Jesus' sermon quickly shifts focus to a time yet future that is associated with His second coming, not the coming of Titus, the Roman general, and the Roman army but rather His. And so the Lord wants us to focus on His second coming. Some, I know, well, they say, they scoff. They say, well, all things remain as they were since the beginning of the creation. Where's the promise of His coming? Um, I don't want to be flippant about it, but go ahead and mock. You'll find out. The Lord came once already, attested, historical fact. He will come again, just as sure as you're sitting here today, tonight. So the disciples then ask some more, um, well, ask some questions. They've made the exclamation about the beauty of these buildings, and then they ask this question. They came to him privately and said, tell us, When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples were looking out, metaphorically now I'm speaking, they were looking out at the night sky, and they were seeing there's a star, and there's another star, and they look like they're right next to each other. But if you were to travel from from us to that first star, 
you'd probably find that other star is not an immediate neighbor. You'd go to that star and you'd find out, oh, that second one is way out there beyond that. So they're looking at it and saying, okay, the temple's going to be destroyed, and immediately next, the immediate neighbor is going to be, the Lord's going to return, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and everything's going to be cool. And the Lord is saying, no, actually, once we get to that point, there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff that's going to unfold before the coming of the Lord the second time. So they ask two questions. This is a private talk that the Lord gives them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this, and it's recorded you know, from them for the public. And the two questions are these. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Those two questions. When and what will be the sign? Okay. Now, I believe that those questions are put there strategically by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in order to outline the rest of the chapter. Jesus answered their questions. He didn't go off on a tangent like, you know, if you're a a professor with a lot of things in your mind and a student asks you a question. I can sort of say this because I'm envisioning myself in my Greek class having this happen. You know, somebody asks me a question and I go on and wax eloquent about some other you know, topic, and then I finally get back to their question. They're just like, I just wanted my question answered. <laughs> I didn't need all that. The Lord doesn't do that either. He doesn't go off and ramble on a whole bunch of other things. He answers their questions. When and what will be the sign of their coming? Now, he does it in reverse order. That's fine. But he, he didn't, and he didn't outline them in a rigidly outlined format, but there is some structure to what is following, and, and I'll, I'll share with you major headings in, in this as we go on. He answers the sign question with increasing specificity throughout chapter 24, 4 through 31, and then he answers the when question starting in verse 32, and you will notice that goes through verse 51 to the end of the chapter, and then there's more beyond that in chapter 25. Today, everybody would like to know the future. People are infatuated with signs and omens and prophecies, some from a Christian perspective, some from a pagan perspective. Over the years, um, you know, people have looked at the daily drumbeat of bad news and they try their hardest to fit it into the outline of what's going to happen here in the coming days, according to Jesus. They look for prophecy in every terrible event. Um, you know, they'll find some combination like, you know, the letters of the hurricane Ian, I-A-N, and they must mean something. And you can find them in this Bible verse and all of this. And it's just, it's, it's foolishness, Okay. The Lord is talking in generalities here about the kinds of things that are going to happen and the conglomeration of all of them. Earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars have been going on for time immemorial. They've certainly been continuing since the Lord left and is, we're awaiting His return. Uh, others spend a lot of time on fortune-telling, palm-reading, horoscopes, Nostradamus and the like. Have you seen the stories about Nostradamus in the news again? Again, yes, somebody who wrote on him in 2005 said that one of his prophecies, he wrote in 2005, one of his prophecies was that the queen would die in 22 at 96 years of age. 
And that's what happened. So what are you supposed to make of that? I mean, he didn't just write this after the events occurred. This was written in 2005. So this book now is flying off the shelves because it's got some great significance. Look, they, they might have made a prediction. They didn't make it by the power of God. That was, you know, that Nostradamus wasn't some Christian seer or anything. But I'm sure we all would admit to wanting to know something of the future. But it's a mercy that we don't. Uh, illness, disease, how we're going to perish, what, what tragedies will befall us, what things will happen in the world, what good things will come, as I alluded to earlier, um, and all of that. We're not privileged to know all of it, but we're privileged to know what God has revealed to us here, that there's going to be signs, there's going to be uh, a timing, and uh, his coming will be at the end of the age. Well, we're going to have to uh, stop there, and next time we'll talk about what are almost the signs, but not quite, and uh, I'll uh, let you think about that until we get back there, maybe on Sunday evening. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that we have the Bible and that we have a certainty about uh, the general outline of things that are coming and yet at the same time you leave much untold so that we have to live and trust you as we go day by day. Help us, I pray, to do that. I want to thank you for the fellowship of these dear ones. Thank you for the fellowship that we shared at the meal together before church. And thank you for the time that we had in prayer before this meeting. Thank you for the word of God. Help us to grow a little bit more from it and to be deep in our thinking about it, uh, that we would live for you. We pray, Lord, for the upcoming events. If you'd be willing on Saturday for the men's prayer meeting and then for the picnic after in the afternoon, that everyone will travel safely and enjoy a good time together. And then for the Lord's Day also, we commit it to you. For those that are hurting tonight due to loss, for those that are sick and uh, maybe sick of being sick, we pray you'd encourage and uplift and uphold them. We ask these favors in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.